0: Good morning, Church Project. I am so honored and privileged to get to speak with you this morning. We are continuing our study through the book of Ruth, um, and today we're studying chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So I'm going to start in, by just reading the passage. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. She went out and gleaned uh, in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground She exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? This passage is a passage about using power and influence for the good of another who is not like you. It is about generosity. It is about caring for the vulnerable and the marginalized. It's about justice for the oppressed. And it is about shalom. All throughout scripture, we see how God is looking for partners to set the world right and to bring shalom. And shalom simply means that nothing is missing and nothing is broken. Everything is the way it was meant to be. Kind of like how we imagine the garden being or what we see in Revelation when it describes the new heaven and the new earth. Earth That is shalom. So after the fall of man, God sets out to find partners who are generous, who are hospitable to outsiders, and who have something that's called chutzpah, um, which just means a fire in their belly to set the world right, to care for the marginalized, the vulnerable, and the oppressed, and to bring justice to all of those people. Uh, And I want to define justice, especially because that word has been uh, used a lot in the public space lately. Justice in the biblical context does not mean punishment for crime. It doesn't mean retribution or vengeance. That is a very modern and Western understanding of what justice is. Uh, and we have to remember that scripture was written by a person for a specific group of people for a specific purpose. Um, and all of it is in the ancient Near Eastern world. So, so the book of Ruth was written by an ancient Near Eastern writer for ancient Near Eastern hearers. Um, so we have to try to understand and see through that lens and understand uh, what, what was meant by justice then. And God's justice is restorative justice. It is actively working to make things right and to bring order and to restore shalom. Uh, And it actually goes to the root of the problem and fixes it so that the problem doesn't continue to happen. Um, It's it's more like proactive justice than reactive justice. Um, And in fact, in Isaiah 61, God says, I love, I, the Lord, love justice and I hate iniquity. And if you do a quick Google search on the definition of iniquity, the first thing that says is gross injustice is the definition. He loves justice. He hates injustice. And I think this is really important to the conversation about Ruth because this is happening in the time of the judges. Um, And perhaps the time of the judges was not about punishment for sin, but about the restoration of shalom. And in this passage, we are introduced to Boaz, Uh, who exemplifies what it means to partner with God to bring shalom to the world. Um, And a quick recap of where we've been. Uh, We've met Naomi and Ruth and understood their story, that they've experienced loss after loss. They've lost husbands, sons. They were fleeing famine. Life is hard, and Naomi comes back, and she says, my name is not Naomi, it's bitter. That is where we pick up this story. And starting in verse 2, Ruth says to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find find favor. And Naomi says, go, go ahead. And at first read, this uh, kind of feels like like a sleepy morning where the gals are just lounging around the house and they're like, hey, what do you want to do today? But think about that conversation in light of all that has happened in the last 10 years. This is not like, hey, where do you want to go for lunch? This is how do we survive now that we are here? Imagine what that must have been like. Imagine what it, would, what it means to be a Moabite in Judah. Ruth, by all accounts, should have been treated so poorly. Women were property. We see that in verse 5. Boaz asks his foreman, who does that woman belong to? Women were property. Um, and a woman without a son was a valueless property. Because she had no one to carry on the family line. And, and typically, a childless widow would marry again within their family line to carry on their former husband's name, Um, but no one in Judah was going to marry a Moabitess. And remember, that's why Naomi sent her, wanted to send her back to Moab, because she would not be treated well in Judah. Uh, John Bloom wrote an article on this passage, and he says that Ruth was a Moabite. Her ancestry had its origin in the incest committed between Lot and his oldest daughter, And though Moabites were related to the Israelites, so to speak, they were enemies because Moab had opposed Israel's advance toward Canaan. And Moabites were not known to worship Yahweh. They were polytheistic pagans, occasionally offering human sacrifices to idol gods like Kamash. As a result, God prohibited the Jews from intermingling and intermarrying with Moabites, unless a Moabite renounced all that being a Moabite meant and became all that it meant to be a Jew. To be a childless Moabite widow in Judah was basically a death sentence for Ruth. It should not have gone well for her. And yes, she, she had this wonderful confession of faith back in chapter one, but the world wasn't there to see that. What they saw was she was a childless Moabite widow. That's who she was to everyone. I wonder if she was expecting to, to have to hide in the shadows as she gleaned. And I wonder if she just like tightened her sandals a little bit tighter that day in case she had to run away from harm. I wonder if she was bracing herself to be sexually abused by men who saw her as expendable. I wonder if she was expecting to eventually starve to death because who in the world would show compassion to a childless Moabite widow? God cares so immensely for the foreigner, for the widow, for the orphan, so much so that he instructs his people to share in their harvest. that's why Naomi instructs Ruth to go and glean in the field, because she knew that an upstanding Israelite, a true man of God, would leave food behind for the foreigner. In Leviticus, this is the, the specific instruction that God gives He says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner residing among you, for I am the Lord your God. God cares for the marginalized people. And Leviticus uh, is an interesting book. It's, it's, never, it's terribly tedious and boring. But when you look at it in its greater context and picture, it's a book of instructions for God's people to live as a kingdom of priests. And a kingdom of priests is a group of people who are set apart. God is saying, I am different than the other gods of the world, and therefore my people will be different. And this is how you live differently than the world. Um, and one of the ways that he wants them to be different, is to use their power and their influence and their resources to care for those in the world who are vulnerable and marginalized. In fact, God cares so much about the vulnerable in the world uh, that he places his people, this kingdom of priests, in the promised land, which in the ancient world, this particular piece of geography was known as the crossroads of the earth. So coming to the promised land was not just for the benefit of the Israelites so they could enjoy the land of milk and honey, which I'm sure they did. Living on this piece of real estate came with a mission. He placed them there so that they could care for the marginalized, they could influence culture, and actively work towards shalom. The It's called the crossroads of the earth because uh, there's a major highway that ran through Israel, and all commerce and global connection was in this particular piece of land. Um, if you wanted to go anywhere in the ancient world, you had to travel through Israel. And you remember in Genesis, he says to Abram, I'm going to bless all nations through you and your family line. And so God chose to put his people in the center of all nations so, they, so that they could bless all nations. I've learned a ton recently from a guy named Marty Solomon. He is a Messianic Jew um, who has a podcast called Baymah Discipleship. And he says this, that God put them at the crossroads of the earth to live in the place where the mountains of God's people met the coastal plains of the pagans, where there is a collision of two cultures, to impact and engage culture in a way that brings shalom to the chaos. He doesn't want us in the corner. He doesn't want us to stay in a safe holy huddle so we don't have to engage culture. If we stay away from culture, he says, we disconnect from the mission of God to bring shalom. God purposely put his people in a place of power to influence culture and take care of the vulnerable and marginalized in their communities. So we get to to verse three and Boaz enters the story. And I looked up a bunch of translations to understand a little bit more about him. And here is how Boaz is described. He is a man of wealth and influence, a a man prominent and rich, a worthy man, a man of standing, a mighty man of wealth, a mighty man of strength, a rich and influential man, Whatever translation you use, Boaz has got it going on. He has land, he has wealth, he has servants, he's probably good looking, he has privilege. And I'm going to pause here and define what privilege means. And I'm using this word on purpose for a couple of reasons. One, because I think it accurately describes what Boaz's standing in the world was at that time. And two, because that word is another word like justice that's been thrown around a lot lately and for some of us it makes us uncomfortable and that's okay. So I want to create a common understanding of what the word privilege means so that we can better understand what's happening in this this encounter between Boaz and Ruth and so we can engage with the culture around us that's talking about this um, to create a common understanding because God wants us to influence culture and so we have to have a shared common language to be able to do that. Privilege really simply means that you were either born with or inherited things that give you a head start in life. Uh, it's not something you worked for or earned. It's just something that is that, that you just automatically possessed the moment you came into the world. So, so an example in my life, um, my dad grew up as one of eight kids and and was very poor growing up and he worked so hard to build wealth. And now I benefit from his hard work. Um, I didn't have to pay for my education. I didn't have to pay for my first car. He helped with a down payment on my first house. And because of that, I started my adult life without any debt. And so I have a head start compared to my friends who did have to pay for those things for their education and cars and houses. Um, It's nothing I did. I just got to benefit from the work that my dad did. And because of that, it's easier for me to get ahead financially. Another example of a place where I don't have privilege um, is my gender. As a woman in leadership, there have been many, many occasions uh, where I've experienced usually unintentional discrimination because I'm a woman, because the world is used to and more comfortable with men being in positions of leadership. It was built more for men than women. And so when I first moved to Greeley about seven years ago, I met our biggest donor for Young Life. Uh, And it was very clear I was the new area director. I was coming in, I was taking over. Fast forward a year, I had just hired someone, a tall bearded man named Mike. And uh, Mike and I met with this donor and the donor knew I was the area director and knew Mike was new on staff, yet he still directed all of his questions to Mike and only made eye contact with Mike because somewhere just in his gut without even realizing it, this man just assumed Mike was in charge because that's what's more normal and more comfortable. Privilege comes in a ton of forms and fashions. Wealth and gender are two examples. Uh, privilege also can look like health and ability and sexuality and religion and race. And here's what is so wild and crazy about privilege. There's one type of privilege that kind of encompasses all of the other ones, and that's race. Race acts kind of like an exponential multiplier, and there are lots of reasons for that that we don't have time to go into, but I would love to talk to you about it if you want to learn. But if a person belongs to the racial majority in a culture, uh, it exponentially grows their privilege. And if a person belongs to the racial minority in a culture, it exponentially grows their vulnerability. Um, It's called privilege because if you possess these things uh, and were born into these things, it's easier for you to thrive in in the world because the system that we live in was built for you. And here's what I mean by system. Stay with me. Let's say a person is in a wheelchair and they're trying to get into a building, but there are stairs leading up to that building. Whoever designed this system of the stairs did not have a person in a wheelchair in mind when they designed the system. And so an able-bodied person who can walk uh, would go in and out of this building without ever thinking that it might not fit for someone else until that person says, Hey, you know what? This system doesn't work for me. I actually can't get into that building. And then we build a ramp. And then when we build new buildings, we just build them without stairs to accommodate for the person that we might've overlooked before. Now, it's not to say that people with privilege have no struggles. We know that's not true. Um, and if I were to, s- it, it, what it means is that your struggles are not added to or compounded by things like your race or your gender or your finances. Um, and it's also not to say that all of God's people have privilege. We, all, we know that's not true. If, if I were to say that, I'd be, I'd be preaching this prosperity gospel, which just kind of misses the point. There's so many people in the world who are poor and in the racial minority who are devout followers of Jesus. If you've tuned out with those definitions, here's where I need you to tune back in. Privilege is not bad. It's just, it just is. It's neutral. It is amoral. Because how can something you're born into be bad, right? Um, And sometimes, not always, it's even God-given, but for a purpose. Like how he placed the Israelites in the crossroads of the earth to influence culture and bring shalom. Privilege comes with great responsibility. And I believe that one of the invitations this passage has for us is to maybe examine and notice what sort of privilege we might have been born into and to ask God, how do you want me to use this for the benefit of others? Boaz inherited certain things from his family line, his wealth, his property, his religious heritage, and he was born with the brown skin and dark hair of an Israelite, and he was a man. And in this day in Judah, that gave him a leg up in every way, and it gave him power. And we get to see how he offered these things for Ruth and her benefit and her restoration. We find in this period of the the judges, which is supposedly just chaos and lawlessness, A man who is a true Israelite, who gets it. He gets the call to protect the vulnerable and the marginalized. And he is working towards shalom. I wonder what could have motivated this. Why did he get it? I mean, Ruth is even surprised that he is doing what he's doing. She says in verse 10, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you would notice me, a foreigner? Well, I bet he really knows God intimately. I bet he's connected to the heart of God. And he's obedient. And obedience, my favorite definition, is just attentive listening. We listen to God and then we do what he says. And that's intimate to actually hear the voice of God. I think that's who Boaz is. The other thing that's so cool about this is Boaz's mother is Rahab. And Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute who, at the cost of her own safety and well being, sheltered the Israelite spies sent by Joshua to Jericho and then she helped them escape. She was an integral part of the Israelites taking the promised land. And she and her family were the only ones. And when I say the only ones, I mean everyone else was gone. They were the only ones left alive when the conquest was over. She was a sinful woman, a foreigner, a refugee, if you will, from a war-torn land. Who was brought into the family of God. Who was part of the lineage of Jesus. John Bloom writes this, he says, imagine the stories Boaz heard as he grew up and imagine how having a mother who had been a foreigner and a harlot yet was grafted in to the olive tree of Israel by the grace of God affected the way Boaz viewed Ruth that day he saw her gleaning in the field. Other men might have simply seen a foreign woman scrounging for food like a parasite. But Boaz saw something familiar and dear in a woman who had left her family and her nation and her gods to embrace Naomi, her nation and her God. Story is so important because it changes and transforms us. It gets us out of our intellect, which we love in the West and into our heart. It softens us and moves us to compassion. And that's why it's so important to to sit and to listen to stories of people who have been who are vulnerable, who've been marginalized. We can't pretend to know what it was like to be Rahab, to, to watch her people and her home just completely annihilated. We cannot pretend to know what it's like to be Naomi in the bitterness of her loss. And we can't pretend to know what it's like to be Ruth, a childless widow in a foreign land. Ruth's Moabiteness is so important to the story. And so is Boaz's Judahiteness. If we don't understand Ruth's standing in the world and how that disadvantaged her, I don't think we get a full picture of the beauty of the story. And we don't understand how beautiful and good and holy that Boaz, a man of privilege, chose to care for her anyway. God's intention in Shalom was for all of us in our beautiful, diverse glory to be one. But after the fall, man learned to use our differences that God designed and ordained for evil purposes. Boaz here says, Ruth, I see that you are different. I understand that people might treat you differently because you're different, but I am choosing not to. In fact, I'm going to go one step further and actively work to restore your dignity and honor. We move on to verses eight and nine and Boaz tells Ruth not to go glean in another field and he instructs his servants to to protect her and not to harass her because he knows how she might be treated if she goes somewhere else. Boaz goes above and beyond the basic call. Yes, he followed the law by not cutting the corner of his field and not picking the scraps up off the ground, but he didn't stop there. He saw a woman who was vulnerable and he moves to help her. And he uses his power and his influence to instruct others who might have mistreated her to protect her. I love in the message translation, he says to Ruth, don't worry about a thing. I've given orders to my servants not to harass you. When you get thirsty, feel free to go and get a drink. Boaz understands what it means to have privilege and use it for others. Being an Israelite man in Judah meant that the world was built for him. Being a childless Moabite widow in Judah meant that the world was not built for her. And Boaz understands this and he uses his wealth and influence to take care of a woman who otherwise would have been abused and mistreated and left for dead because of her race and her gender and her marital status. He shares God's heart for the foreigner. And he gets the call to use what he's been given for the benefit of others. He is a true partner with God to bring shalom and to bring justice to this world so how does this inform what's going on in our world and how to engage this right here is like it's a success story right this is what it looks like to see someone who is vulnerable and to restore them but if the vulnerable are not taken care of they can easily become oppressed and and that may have been where Ruth's story was headed if Boaz hadn't intervened a woman addicted to drugs is vulnerable but if in her vulnerability, someone doesn't step in and help restore her and somehow she ends up in the sex trade and is trapped there, that is oppression. And a fatherless boy is vulnerable. And if, so, and if in his vulnerability, no one comes along to father him and help raise him and he just ends up in the wrong crowd and somehow ends up in prison, that is oppression. A kid with a learning disability is vulnerable. And if someone doesn't step in and come along and teach him in a way that he understands and the way that he sees the world and somehow he doesn't finish high school and can't get a well-paying job that's oppression someone living in poverty is vulnerable and if in her vulnerability someone doesn't come along and teach her about money and stewardship and help her get a job and maybe even give her actual money to help her make ends meet for a little while and somehow she ends up homeless on the streets that is oppression like I said before, privilege is not bad. It just is. And sometimes it's even God given. But when people who have privilege and don't understand it and don't use it for the purposes of bringing shalom to the earth, it leads to oppression. And God has a lot to say about oppression. In Exodus 3, where God appears to Moses in the burning bush, God says, I have indeed heard the cry of my people. And the word there is the zakah. And he's come to rescue them. Now, the zakah is not like a baby crying. And it's not um, like after a hard day or hard week, you're just like exhausted and, and weepy. The zakah is the sound of a person or a people group crying out in absolute anguish, because they have been oppressed and enslaved and taken advantage of and mistreated, abused and beaten. And the cry that went up to God's ears and moved him was the cry of a people who were helpless and hopeless. And what's wild is they didn't even cry out specifically to Adonai, the God of Israel. They just cried out. And God heard them and he sent Moses. God's plan A for rescuing people living in oppression is not to snap his fingers and just suddenly free them, nor is it to only offer them spiritual freedom and salvation. His plan is to send really imperfect and fickle people like you and like me to set the oppressed free. Our call is to protect and care for the vulnerable. And when vulnerability has turned into oppression, we have to fight for freedom. Think about the coronavirus shutdown. An entire society moved on behalf of the most vulnerable population. And oh my goodness, hasn't that been so hard? Because laying down privilege is hard and uncomfortable. But that is a beautiful picture of what it looks like to move on the behalf of the most vulnerable. And now, right now, there is a zakah from the black community. And it's a zakah that has lasted for 400 years, which coincidentally, is about how long the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. And in the last two weeks, that cry has gotten louder and louder. So my question for us is this. How will we lay down our privilege to bring justice to the oppressed? And for those of us who are white, we do have privilege. And for those who have, have, have wealth, even more so. And I'm not saying that because it's, it's bad. There's no judgment. It just is. And because it is, how will we lay it down and move on, the, on behalf of the most vulnerable in our community. Now some of these words I just said may feel really political. Especially in light of the last couple weeks. But they're not. They're biblical words. And so my invitation is when you hear these types of words, especially from trusted leaders. Take a deep breath. And just remove yourself from the media you've consumed. And lean in and ask the Holy Spirit, teach me about you. Teach my heart about your heart for your people. The enemy has turned the cause of God into something political. And when I say the cause of God, I mean what Jesus said in in Luke 4, which also appears in Isaiah 61. And he says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. The cause of God is spiritual, yes, of course it is. But it is tangible and physical, too. Jesus literally gave sight to the blind. Don't you think he also literally meant to bring freedom to the captives? Somehow, the cause of Jesus has been made political, which is genius on the part of the enemy, because church and politics shouldn't mix, right? He's thrown God's desire for shalom and justice into the political arena so that God's followers will be afraid to touch it. Following Jesus cannot and will not align you with either political party because Jesus cares for the orphan, the widow, the black man, the brown woman, the immigrant, the refugee, the unwed teen mom, the woman who chose life, the woman who didn't, the person whose sexuality is non-binary, the poor, the hungry, the homeless, the sick, the elderly, and the disabled. Caring about all those people will always put you straddling party lines. And to hear the tzakah and fight for shalom in this world will always put you on opposite sides of the political conversation. So please understand, it's not political. It's the way of Jesus, the way of shalom. We have to learn to live in the tension and choose the third way. And here's what I mean. I'll close with this. In John 8, Jesus gets set up to choose a side about the woman caught in adultery. Do we stone her and uphold the law and not show any mercy and compassion? Or do we show her mercy and compassion and thereby not upholding the law? And Jesus said neither. He chose a third way, he found a way through, and he knelt down. And he asked the onlookers to dig deep and examine themselves. And in doing so, she was pardoned and they were transformed. We need Jesus to teach us how to hold the tension and choose the third way. Jesus, thank you for this message and how timely it is. Would you teach us to be good stewards of whatever you've given us to work towards shalom in the world? Amen.